Welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we will be talking about character customization. If you've ever spent two hours making your avatar's face perfect, only to put on a helmet in the first few minutes, you know the struggle. Tell me pick out the perfect shirt to accent my eyes is my good friend, Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? Doing well, man. Doing well. Um, I think for you, <laughs> I'd recommend either Tommy Bahama from top to bottom with sandals and socks, of course, uh, or a wizard's cloak. Right on, right on. I was thinking, how does this, uh, how does this pastel look on me? I was thinking pastels kind of bring out the blue a little bit. Um, I think you have to wait until Easter. Otherwise, it's a faux pas. Okay, well, what do you think about this this pattern I'm wearing? This, like, earthen pattern that I got going on here? Well, might I recommend maybe something in, like, a plumber red with suspenders? That's very in right now. Or if you're feeling frisky, maybe, like, a, a full raccoon suit. <laughs> right on. <laughs> the, the joke is it's an audio podcast. No one can see me. It's very funny. Da, 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 da. All right. <laughs> Jared, how you doing, man? <laughs> I am well. I'm well. Thank you. You're actually well, or is this like still part of your your bit? No, no, no. I'm I'm always good. How are you? I'm doing well, man. I got a uh, new house. I'm a landowner now. Wow, how's that? I'm feel? living. I'm living the millennial dream. It's great. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> are you yeah. still able to afford avocado toast? I've never. I, I've honestly never had avocado toast. Mm. I don't even know where to procure such a such a uh, a fine delicacy. I'll send you my recipe. It was. It's been handed down from. California, California. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jared, I'm excited to talk about character customization, and we have a great guest today. She's an associate producer with Giant Bomb. She's host of the 13 Deadly Sims. She's the inventor of the phrase "dog bottom." Please welcome Abby Russell. Abby, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Um, what an intro. <laughs> well, I feel we, like do, we need we to prepare people better for that. <laughs> yeah, I know. We 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 do our best to drive all of our guests so as far away from us as possible <laughs> just set the tone as like uncomfortable as we can yep. <laughs> we, we make it we make it awkward because we find that our our guests do best when they're on edge no i like to do a good perfect abby how are you i'm doing well well how are you guys i'm doing well i uh, i don't know if you heard i own a house now i did I'm hear congratulations <laughs> thank you thank mm-hmm. you it's, it's pretty sweet i've, I've never owned a house before so this is all new and exciting for me how many now responsible for how many bathrooms yeah isn't that a thing that you look for when you're buying a house the right number of bathrooms as long as it's more than zero i'm typically pretty happy i think that's probably fair (laughs) (laughs) um and i guess i should say if 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 for some reason my audio sounds worse um i'm sorry i still haven't had a, a chance to like fully get a get everything set up uh if the audio sounds better, you're you're welcome, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, Abby, for people who might not be familiar with you, where did you get your start working in video game coverage? Um, well, Giant Bomb was my first job in the industry. Um, so I, I pretty much got that right out of school. I graduated in January um, of uh, what of 2017, I guess. January 2017, yeah. And then in May, I got the job. And sort of in between, I had been editing freelance and sort of just looking for full-time work. But I went to school for film production um, in the hopes of becoming like a a film editor. What was the process of getting hired on at Giant Bomb like? I remember, I think when you you had started at Giant Bomb, they published an article because I think you had got hired 
along with someone else. And yeah, they, it was they, Ben Peck. Ben Peck, yeah. And they posted like an announcement that you two had gotten hired. But in that announcement, they I think they said there were like thousands of people that had applied for that position. So what was that? What was that process like getting hired on there? Um, yeah, from what I understand, I think there were like over a thousand people, which I didn't have to deal with, thankfully, but I think was very daunting for the uh, people who are dealing with it. Um, but Giant Bomb is owned by CBS Interactive. So I think a lot of the early stuff was kind of sifted through a recruiter. I started by uh, I like applied online and then I got a call from a recruiter about a week later and then we had a phone interview and then a week after that, I had a panel interview with uh, Vinny, Dan, and Alex. So it was really thrown in, thrown in the deep end, I think. Uh, and then after that, I had a third interview, which is really a job offer. But yeah, it was about, I think, a bun- about a month long from beginning to end. Now, were you familiar with the Giant Bomb property before you got hired on there? Or were you more like, we had um, Drew on not too long ago, oh, and cool. it sounded like he kind of he kind of like stumbled into Giant Bomb, not really knowing what it was. But were you familiar with it beforehand? I was familiar, but I wasn't like intimately familiar. Um, and I, I did a lot of research sort of in the process of interviewing. And I was sure, I don't know, I like tried to get more familiar with the work without getting familiar with the people involved, if that makes sense. Like I didn't want to come in like knowing a bunch of weird personal stuff about everybody. Um, but yeah, I, I, I know people who uh, follow Giant Bomb. So I actually like borrowed a friend's premium login while I was researching it to watch the premium stuff. But um, I, I knew about it. I had watched some of Patrick's uh, Mario Maker streams, him getting through dance levels. Um, but that's I think that's pretty much the extent of it before I started kind of researching it for the interviews. I'm, I'm assuming you were a big like fan of, of video gaming before you had got hired on with Giant Bomb. It is working at Giant Bomb like working in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory like is it is it like totally amazing every day you get to go in and play video games or is it like a job um I mean I think there's a mix of both I think day to day I'm absolutely I feel so thankful for this job I absolutely love it like I'm in a very very fortunate position to work here and I think it's really cool to have a job like not only do I like my coworkers and enjoy the work I'm doing but it also challenges me and is kind of working on a technical skill while still just being fun I guess um but yeah, I don't know. It's it's pretty cool to, I don't know, have games be such a big part of my job. But it also makes sort of my home life. Like, I feel like I play less games at home that aren't for work. Like, when I'm relaxing, I'll probably watch more TV now, which I really didn't watch any TV before the job. Just because I think part of me is like, it's hard for me to not play a game and think like, okay, like, what are my thoughts about this? Do I like it? Do I not like it? Like, what am I going to say on the podcast kind of thing? Like, I think I approach games a little bit differently now, which, uh, you know, is good and bad. It's, yeah, it's good and bad. But all in all, I feel very, very fortunate to be working here. I hear you on that. I So Steve and I both also have film and production degrees, and oh, cool. um, we've worked on a lot of sets. I kind of recently made a transition to games coverage as well for uh, a company called Machinima, and uh the last thing I want to do when I get home is play video games or think about video games, right. even though it's been my, my lifelong passion. I'm like, man, I don't really want to sit in front of a computer and uh, think about this right now. So the struggle is there for sure. Yeah, totally. And I think another way I sort of push back on that struggle is I just I I just play games that I like, but aren't necessarily something that I'm going to be able to talk about at work so much. Like I've been playing The Sims a lot more now, which is partially because I'm doing a feature at work on The Sims. So I think it kind of like reignited that passion for me, but also because it's not really a game that anyone's talking about. So I don't have to like 
dissect all of my thoughts and opinions on it. I can just enjoy it and not worry about it. And it, it sounds like the job has sort of seeped its way into your your day-to-day life. I'm curious about another aspect of that. I mean, it seems like since you got hired on at Giant Bomb, you've gained a, a lot of notoriety. I think a lot of people were, you know, gravitated towards your your personality. I mean, if, if people don't follow you on Twitter, they they definitely should. <laughs> I mean, even like your even your pinned tweet might be one of the funniest <laughs> tweets I've ever I've, I've ever Thank read. Thank you so much. But, I'm very proud. You're, you're, <laughs> <laughs> is it also at the oh, top of your resume when you apply? Yes, your of course. Yeah. <laughs> That's all my resume is is the pinned tweet. <laughs> That's beautiful. I love it. <laughs> It's it's actually poetry. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> but but so how, does it feel that way to you? Do you do you feel like you you've gained like a certain amount of fame? Do people recognize you on the street? How how has that um how has that part been um, for you since you got hired on at Giant Bomb? I'd say for the most part, I feel the same. Like my Twitter was pretty much the same kind of thing before I got a following on it like I feel very fortunate to now actually have like feedback but I like Twitter because I like writing jokes and it's a good platform to just write like a one-off joke um but as far as like day-to-day stuff I will get recognized very occasionally and it's usually at like nerd stuff like I saw Star Wars opening night and I got recognized there or like I've gone to like some wrestling shows with Alex and Dan and it's like we'll get recognized there so it's usually at like I know the places I'll get recognized at. it's usually more unusual if it's like I'm at the grocery store and someone notices me um, Does that trip you out? A little bit. I mean, people are usually very nice, and it's New York, so I feel like people are good about being like, "Hey, love you on Giant Bomb. See you later." You know what I mean? They're not gonna like hang around. Um, although I did have one guy, he didn't hang around, but I was like walking through Williamsburg to go to a theater, and I was wearing a Giant Bomb shirt. Um, and then one guy was like, "I love your shirt," and I was just like, "Thanks." And I don't think he realized. I don't think he recognized me. <laughs> uh, so that was kind of interesting. Um, but as far as like the day-to-day stuff, it's not a huge change. Um, if anything, it's the people who knew me before who are now like, why is your Twitter big? Because I think they don't really realize what I do. Um, because it's if you are if you don't know what Giant Bomb is, then it's hard to explain what Giant Bomb is, if that makes sense. Uh, so I think some of my like comedian friends are a little like, oh, this is like some weird thing about you that I don't fully understand, but cool. You know what I mean? You do improv too, right? Yes. Yeah, I do improv um, at the Magnet Theater in Manhattan and a, a few other theaters as well, but that's where I perform most regularly. I'd say. Well, Abby, so at Giant Bomb, what's your what's your favorite what's your favorite part of working there? Have you had like one like super amazing experience or some prolonged thing that's like just your favorite part about working? I mean, I, I'm asking because like you and Jared both sort of have, my, I guess, I guess my dream job. <laughs> <laughs> but I, so I'm curious for you, like, what your favorite part is of of working mm. there. I mean, I really like the people involved. Like, I feel like I'm in a very fortunate position, not only with my coworkers, who I really love. Like, it's, uh, I've definitely had jobs where I have come in and I haven't enjoyed all of the sort of interpersonal stuff. So I feel feel very fortunate just on like a base level, kind of outside of the actual work I do to enjoy working with my coworkers. Like, I think that's a really nice privilege. Um, But there are also just a lot of people in the industry that I'm now friends with that I feel very fortunate for. Um, or even like that I can sort of get career wisdom from like I I really feel fortunate that I'm friends with like Austin Walker uh, who not only worked at Giant Bomb so I can be like hey like what are your thoughts on this thing or like ugh, I don't know I'm having a weird day at work do you know like do you have any advice or whatever it is and he'll like understand where I'm coming from but also just people who are like in the industry with me who maybe came up around the same time I did and I get to like be friends with them now I don't know I just I've met a bunch of cool people 
I guess, through working here, which is a really nice privilege. And I'm very thankful for that. You pitched, you actually um, proposed this topic of character customization for our uh, discussion today. Typically, we kind of start off our, uh, our discussion by going on a little history lesson. So Jared, I'll, I guess I'll throw it over to you now. Where did, uh, where did character customization come from? Where did, where did this idea in video games originate? Like a lot of our subjects, uh, it can be traced back to like pen and paper RPGs. I think that's probably most people's thought when they think about rolling a character. That's, wh- that's where that term comes from, is rolling the dice to determine stats. But uh, in 1970, there was a uh, pen and paper game called Blackmore. It was a fictional campaign developed by David Arneson for miniature war games. It featured some of the earliest known numbered stats to account for specific character traits. And then he later went on and worked with uh, Gary Gygax to flesh out these concepts and eventually, you know, led to Dungeons and Dragons, which people are most familiar with. Now, Blackmore, Blackmore is funny because there's not really a whole lot left of that game. It's not really like so much a game. It was more sort of like a campaign for this like pre-existing like miniature war game that that uh, Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson would would play with a group of other guys. But there's like one surviving character sheet from uh, Arneson's invention, and and the stats on it are so goofy. There's a there's a stat for sex on this thing. Which, what, is, <laughs> what does that mean? I, I don't know. Just like how, think, how good are you at sex? I guess I don't know because I think there was I think there was like separate stats for things like charisma, you know, which is sort of I guess be the like D and D equivalent to like your appeal, but sure. <laughs> for there to literally just be a sex stat seems mm. so goofy today. Might say something a little bit about the times. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Abby, are you a, you a D and D player at all? No, I would like to, I, I know some friends who do it for a long time. I was trying to convince my friend to let me join her D and D group as an affordable talking car. And she refused. And I'm very sad <laughs> about <you>. it. <laughs> Um, but I, I would love to do it. It seems so fun and like right up my alley. Especially being an improv. It's like the perfect exercise. Yeah. I've done the, I like did like one day of it with old roommates of mine, but they were like using a story they made up. So it wasn't as fun. I Mm. think also I find the combat really dull, but the, uh, sort of role playing parts very fun, which I think is, um, a little different to how a lot of people play from what I understand. I think a lot of people really love the combat. The different, the different editions of Dungeons and Dragons definitely focused on different things like over the years they've sort of looked at like oh people like combat let's emphasize the combat in this version or people like the role playing so it's kind of like pendulous in that it like goes back and forth so part of it might just be finding the addition of D&D that that works for you but the other part is just finding a group of people because even within groups you know people prefer certain different kinds of things but I, I would say I would say get on it because it's yeah for for someone who does improv and also works in video games it's it's i mean my my experience with D&D when I first played it which was i mean not that long ago I didn't play it till I was in my late 20s but it was like oh my god this is where video games came from we've talked about it a lot on this show in this sort of like history section of of our podcast where uh, Dungeons and Dragons comes up all the time and it's because it had such a huge influence and such a long reaching influence in video games that when I think if you ever do sit down Abby and like get a campaign going with a group of people you'll realize like holy shit this goes like this goes all the way back to the beginning of video games it's pretty cool yeah that does sound cool and like I never really thought about it that way but you're totally right like I could totally see 
Sony games being inspired by sort of just the basic elements of Dungeons Dungeons and Dragons and sort of these tabletop role-playing games. Uh, and I would definitely love to do it. I need to just sort of coordinate and get a group going, but that can be difficult. Not to get too off topic here, but one of the things that I found difficult having played video games my whole life and then trying to play Dungeons and Dragons was getting out of that mindset of how limiting video games can be. Whereas mm-hmm. in pen and paper RPGs, like you can literally do anything that you want as long as you know, your, your DM says it's okay. Um, so trying to think outside the box while also being bombarded by all these systems that you're normally familiar with from video games, it's, a, it's an interesting thought exercise. But uh, anyways, moving on to the um, video game portion of the origins of character creators, there was a game that we brought up again called Maze War, which came out in 1973. It was considered one of the earliest first-person shooters, and it was designed by Steve Coley for the... What do you, how do you, how do you pronounce that? The MLAC? The MLAC. The MLAC PDS-1. I have no idea if that's how it's pronounced. That's just how I I read it. I've never seen one of these computers (laughs) in my lifetime. I've never heard a human being speak these words. We come from a place of zero authority in any of this. Oh, yeah. No, it sounds very real. I believe you in everything. Thank you. We we should say that in every single episode. We we have zero authority (laughs) or knowledge on any of this stuff. I'm pretty sure I pulled this from Wikipedia. (laughs) I mean, I had a citation, but whatever. Um, but anyways, yeah, Maze War. You, you ran through a maze, and I think it had it was multiplayer, right? I think they came up in our multiplayer, one of our multiplayer discussions. Yeah, yeah. I believe it was exclusively multiplayer. I think the early version of the game was a single player game, and they found that it just wasn't very much fun. And it, and I mean, basically, it was the first networked computer game, and they did it out of necessity to make the game more fun. And they they just happened to invent the LAN party at the same time. It's kind of cool. So the reason we bring it up here is because like in the earlier versions of the game, your your avatar that you played as was just your name. So I guess you could kind of look at that as being you could make your name whatever you wanted it to be. And that was your character that you created. Oh, man. Did people use like text emojis back then? Have you seen those? I don't know. I was like wondering that myself. Guy. I was like, had people discovered the the penis with the eight and the equal signs? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I imagine like that's what you'd want as a first person shooter avatar. Of course. Um. Shortly after that, in 1981, Ultima One, the first Age of Darkness, came out. It was developed by Richard Garriott and Ken Arnold for the Apple II computer. It was a, maybe, you know, people would be most familiar with this kind of design when they think about modern games. It was a top-down RPG, and the goal was to retrieve the gem of immortality or whatever. Uh, to this, this, the players, <laughs> like, explore dungeons and travel in, into outer space. It sounds like nonsense. It is nonsense, right? Yeah, like but like, you know, at the start of the game, you stand, you assign stat points. So like, that's pretty, if you look at that, you can be like, oh, yes, yes, I, I, I know that now. I know that looks like a video game to me now. And there was more than just the stat points, too. There was also, you were selecting the race of your character from like, you know, pretty typical uh, fantasy races and classes. Um, but then there was also, you would choose what uh, you would choose from a binary selection of of genders either male or female and that would affect what your avatar looked like on screen cool any ultima fans out there probably (laughs) (laughs) i mean they've made a million of them (laughs) there's a there's a million ultimas so someone must be playing them i think it might just be jeff canada from dlc i think he single-handedly kept that franchise alive (laughs) all right well I guess this might be a good time for us to jump into sort of how we define character customization, because I think it could mean a lot of things, like even in sort of our our brief overview of the history of character customization and gaming, we kind of touched on a lot of different things. But 
Abby, I'll throw it to you first. When you think about customizing your video game character, what what first sort of leaps to your mind? Um, I usually first think about cosmetics more than I think about like stats or sort of uh, gameplay mechanic changes. Like I, I I really love a game like Tomodachi Life or like The Sims where I can literally make my friends uh, and make them as cartoonishly photoreal as I can. You know what I mean? Because uh, I like seeing like the goofy world that like they can all inhabit i think that's very fun so i usually think about it as uh as primarily cosmetic of like i'm gonna adjust the features on the face and i'm gonna adjust the clothing and uh this maybe won't affect the game but it'll affect sort of how i feel towards the game if that makes sense when you pitched this topic initially Mm -hmm. the first thing that jumped to my mind was appearance as well cosmetics yeah and when i started to kind of put my notes together i was like oh shit she said character customization there's a lot more to it than just <laughs> putting on fancy hats. Right. And that was, <laughs> so I think that that kind of like blew the, the conver- you know, is going to blow this conversation wide open to, to being able to discuss a, a lot of different things. Yeah. Totally. Uh, Jared, you, what do you think of when you think of character customization? Do you just think of appearance or stats or, or what, what first came to your mind? Yeah, normally it's it's the appearance and, and the, how, the fidelity of what they let you change on your character. Why? Why is that? Like, I, I, it's weird that all three of us, that's sort of the first thing that kind of comes to our minds is the uh, the the physical appearance of the character. Well, when if we we're talking about, about something characters. like if you're thinking about like, you know, rolling a character, say, like in Dark Souls, where you can choose all of your starting stats. Like, I, I, I don't like that because if I'm not familiar with the game and the game's mechanics, like, how am I supposed to know what? I want to put stats into, you know, it's like, I don't, I don't feel like you should be locked in from the start. So um, when I think about custom character customization, it's usually first all, first of all, like the appearance, like, what, what am I going to be looking at for the next, you know, 10, 20 hours? Yeah. I was just curious, like, I, I maybe it's because like graphics have gotten better over time or something. I don't know. It, it's weird that the first thing that jumps out to me is this idea of what, what does my character look like when I'm thinking about character customization? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, what your character looks like doesn't really affect gameplay too much. You know, the things like stats are, are what's really going to affect your experience of playing the game. I'll kind of put that in quotes because uh, obviously, like, the way your character looks affects your enjoyment of the game. In your mind, what makes the idea of directly affecting the look of your character or the stats of your character different from just the idea that playing a game and crafting your own narrative and experiences for your character is in some way a character customization? Um, um, well, I think for me, um, I feel like because it doesn't really affect the gameplay, I can kind of be uh, more personal or I don't know maybe more emotional that feels like a weird word for it about it just because as far as when I'm playing the game it's usually I'm going to cater it to the game itself like I'm usually thinking about it as more of a strategy thing or as a sort of um, I don't know I'm thinking about like the game like Prey uh, which is where the character customization as far as like the branch you go along if you choose like the mimic branch or if you choose sort of a more like brute force thing or a stealthy thing is going to affect the way you play the game but that's usually more of a strategy thing of like which way like what strategy do I want to take whereas in the beginning when you're making a character it's much more of a kind of what do I want to look like who do I want to be who do I want to pretend to be and although there is an aspect of that in the uh I guess the sort of stats you pick I feel like that's it's usually more 
I don't know, I guess in relationship to uh, the game that's being played and kind of what's best suited to the game versus what's best suited to you and your personality. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. And I, and I like that you connected it to emotion because I feel like, you know, when I'm talking about stats directly affecting right. the, the way you play a game, I think appearance is more of that like emotional connection to a game. So I think that's a really good a really good point to bring up. Jared, do you do you consider like just the act of playing a game and crafting a experience that's unique to your character character customization or or am I getting like way too far off into the deep end? Um, I don't know. I mean, can you can you clarify? Do you mean like No, what, I, that's <laughs> that's, about as, that's about as clear as I can make it. I don't know. I think like we all launch, you know, we all start up a game of Uncharted, a fairly linear narrative game, but we all play it in like different ways, right? Like, what makes the way that I play Uncharted? This is it's like interesting that you would bring in. up Uncharted, which has no character <laughs> customization. Yeah. Well, yeah, no traditional character customization. But if I decide that my Nathan Drake is like a run into battle, guns blazing, and you decide that your Nathan Drake is a stealthy, take out the guards, isn't that in some way kind of a character customization? Or or am I just crazy? You're. I mean, you're allowed to say I'm just crazy. <laughs> You're crazy. That is a valid option. You're crazy. Okay. No, because okay. I think I think that's that's just more in the line of giving you options within the mechanics. I think that his personality doesn't change depending on whether you're you're going loud or if you're going stealthy. So to me, that would fall into you know more of a, a mechanical thing where I feel that character customization, uh, at least in this discussion, probably falls more into aesthetics and maybe you know role playing as as how you think your character would portray themselves in that world. And since you pitched this topic, Abby, I'm mm-hmm. assuming that this is something that this is a mechanic that you enjoy. Am I right? Am I correct in that assumption? Yeah, totally. Like, I love character customization. I think it's so fun. And I also think it can totally affect how much I'm enjoying a game. Um, like, I think I, I didn't really love Monster Hunter I think partially because I enjoyed making my character in the beginning. I really loved making a cat. Like I found that very fun. But oh, I was yeah. so excited like... when you switched over to my cat. I was like, ooh, I can. I know it's here. like it's awesome, right? But I I found I didn't really like the like outfits I got later in the game. Um, and the, the loot is such a big part of that game. And like I also just wasn't enjoying the gameplay itself. But I think if I perhaps liked the loot more, I would stay in it longer. Uh, so I think it can totally affect how much I play a game either way. And also just to sort of stick on this topic, I guess, I I like sold Monster Hunter to play everybody's golf and I could make a character that looked exactly like me but had mutton chops and acted like a grandma and that was like amazing to me. Like I love that game. It makes me laugh every time I play it just because I look so silly, right? Like it, it, I think it totally affects how I play a game and how how much I like a game a lot of the time because I'm like constantly reminded what I look like. And I think in some games... I might be more invested if I, I've made a character that looks like myself or looks like my friend uh, or just looks like a, a fantasy version of me, if that makes sense. Monster Hunter is an interesting example because I think I felt like they had a pretty good character creator. Like they had a lot of options. But as soon as you got out of that, I spent probably like an hour making my character. But the first thing you do is put on armor that just like completely changes the shape and look of your character totally. with a helmet. And it's like, well, then what was the point of that? Um, your cat yeah. you can see your cat's face most of the time so that was a little bit better but the other thing that I've seen people complain about there's there's comparison pictures of how high resolution the character creator was versus how your character actually looked in the game mm. um, it's a significant downgrade because my guy he he ended up looking 
pretty bad in the game versus <laughs> in the character creator. So I was like, whatever, just throw a helmet on him. So in the end, it didn't really matter. But um, yeah, I kind of wish that it, it affected, you know, what I was looking at a little bit more because I don't know in a game that's all about loot, I guess I didn't know what else to expect. Yeah, totally. Now, Jared, do you have a a favorite kind of character creator at a st- at the start of a game? Do you like character creators that give you a lot of options for affecting the look of your character? Or do you like games that give you a lot of options with your stats? Or do you prefer only a little bit of, of leeway in those regards? What's what's your like your favorite method for creating a character when you start up a game? Well, if it's a brand new game, I absolutely hate having to choose starting stats. I think maybe choosing a class is, is cool. So you kind of have an idea of how that, that class plays. But as soon as I, I, you know, I don't know the mechanics yet. I don't really want to, I don't want to have to commit that early. A lot of games I'll save up, you know, stat points so that I <laughs> wait until halfway through the game and spend them all versus how, you know, depending on how I wanted to play the game. Um, I generally really like character creators that give you a lot of options, even if often, I would say more often than not, I probably will just maybe try to randomize it and adjust things that I think look weird just because I don't, I don't know, some games I don't want to spend a ton of time making a character. I don't really know why that is. Um, it might, it might depend on the genre of game or, you know, how I'm, how I'm feeling about, um, how that game is going to appeal to me. Like Mass Effect, I spent quite a bit of time because I knew right away that that character was going to span over three different games. Um, and I think, Mass Effect might come up a lot in this discussion because every time I watch video of someone else's Mass Effect, I'm like, no, 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 that's not Shepard. No. That's, <laughs> that's not my Shepard. Um, so I don't know. It, it, it's, it depends on game to game for me, and I'm not really sure why that is. Yeah, I saw um, Andrea Renee. She had posted something on Twitter asking, you know, do you spend a lot of time in character creators or not? Just basically sort of generally asking the internet. And my response to that was like, no, I typically don't spend a whole lot of time like adjusting the look of my character. But if you give me a clothing store in a video game, my God, I will spend hours in there <laughs> trying on clothes for, for my character. Uh, but Abby, how about you? Do you have a do you have like a preferred method for character customization when you fire up a new game? Um, I think it depends on the game. I mean, I, I'm definitely a sucker for just like full on. You can adjust everything down to like the most minute detail. Um, but I do think it really depends on the game. Like some games, I definitely want a character that looks very specific or like looks specific to a world. Um, but other times I just want a character that's like, okay, this is like generic enough, but I get to put on fun clothes and it's fun and I get to customize it that way. Um, I, I do think I really like a game that lets you customize it in like a fantastical way, like something like Destiny or like um, Dragon Age Origins, I think, had a pretty good customization option where it's like you can make these orcs and you can give them horns and you can give them all this very specific stuff um, that is not necessarily something you would see in other character creations, but you could sort of make it very in tune to this world that you're kind of about to be a part of anyway, if that makes sense. Do you, if you're playing a game where you're making a human character, do you try to make it look like you or do you try to make it look like something else um i think it depends on the game but i feel like for the most part i try to make it look like something else um i think i really enjoy kind of the uh definitely the role playing and fantasy aspect of it i like also just making a character that looks very cool someone who's like i would be that person if i could just because i'm like (laughs) wow they look rad Uh, but less so i want to make 
me in a game, I find, I don't know. I think it, depending on the game, like for everybody's golf, I made like a version of me. Obviously, she's very silly with the mutton chops and everything, but that's like a very kind of grounded game. Whereas I feel like if I saw a version of myself in like a high fantasy world, I would be a little like, okay, I, I'm we're, I'd like the suspension of disbelief is maybe a little too much here. <laughs> How about you, Steve? Do you tend to make characters that look like yourself or do you draw inspiration from other sources? No, I typically I typically try to get a character that kind of looks like an idealized version of myself, usually just sort of as like a like a rule of thumb. And not not because I, I'm like narcissistic, but mostly just because I'm like too lazy to try to imagine something else or create <laughs> something else. So I just kind of like I mean this is a podcast people can't see me but like i'm 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 bald i'm i have a beard like if i can kind of just throw those things onto an an avatar like i'm i'm pretty much ready to rock and roll the the things that i like are sort of maybe the more creative approaches to character customization and this could be either appearance or stats but i think about a game like fallout 3 where kind of at the beginning of that game you take that test was it a goat goat test i think was that what it was called dang it yeah i think so the one in the little like kids book yeah Yeah. it's like Mm -hmm. an acronym or something yeah so you start out in like a classroom and you're taking this test and it's all sort of like you know respond to these kinds of situation questions and from that they'll sort of apply stats to your character based on how you responded to those things I think the old Monster Rancher did something like that as well. I'm, oh, now I'm trying. Now I'm digging like way back into the memory bank. But I think the old Monster Rancher game, when you got your like license to ranch monsters, it was another like personality test that sort of affected the way that you your character behaved in that game. I kind of like that stuff. The stuff where um, they sort of gamify the creating of your character. That's that's like the kind of approach that I prefer because. I mean, yeah, you can. It's like yeah, this faux psychological thing that they're doing to you, and I'm I'm always like unsure for some reason if I should be answering those as me or if I should be like, well, what would my character who's in this world, how would he answer it? Um, and I I always have like that that internal struggle between those two things. So Abby, obviously you you enjoy the process of like creating a character and seeing your character in the world. Why is that important to the way that you play games? I think for a few reasons, probably. I think sometimes there are games where if I don't like the main character that they have already made for me, it's going to make me enjoy the game less. And I find a lot of the times when you can customize your character, I mean, this is not this is not always the case, certainly, but I feel like a lot of times when you can customize the character, you can usually customize their personality or they have sort of a blank slate personality and you can kind of project whatever you want onto it depending on the actions you take in the game um if that makes sense so even like uh i guess going back to like dragon age origins um you make your own character and then you can sort of choose all the speech options or choose who you want to romance and there's very much a character customization aspect to how you play the game and sort of your character's perspective changes uh with you versus in a game maybe like Witcher 3, it's like I'm kind of stuck with this character and if I don't like him, if I don't like his attitude uh, or if I don't like his style or whatever, then maybe I'm not going to enjoy the game as much. You know, it's going to affect kind of the story and how I play the game. Um, I think that's probably part of why it's important to me is I can sort of have full control over not only the the character and the way they look, but also usually how they act or at the very least uh, they're a blank slate so I can kind of 
assume or um, disregard maybe traits I don't like if I want to assume that they aren't like that. Now, you're kind of touching on something. So when I was thinking about this from the aesthetic perspective, I was thinking about a game like Fable, where based on how you played that character kind of changed the way that the character looked. Like if you went down the evil path, your character started to look more evil. Same thing with like Knights of the Old Republic, I think, is if you went Sith, you would start looking different. Oh, that's cool. Red Dead Redemption has a similar thing too. It's not how you look necessarily, but it's how people treat you and how your horse looks. Like if you're super evil, you'll get like the like war horse or something, I think it's called. What? I didn't even know that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. But that's... I mean, that stuff's really cool, too, because then you sort of like wear the experiences of your character on on your character. That 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 seems really neat. Jared, why why is customizing your character important for you the way that you play games? I think it has a lot to do with like what you want to look at for the rest of the game Um, in games that you get a lot of loot, you know, like armor and stuff like that. Um, I find that if it doesn't change my appearance significantly, um, I start to lose interest in that gameplay loop. One of the things that I really like about loot games is like, you know, Monster Hunter is the greatest example of this because you're always getting very unique looks and you change it up a lot. And I think that being able to express the way that you are playing the game through the look of your character uh, adds a lot to it. Uh, you, you linked an article here from a friend of the show, Jamie Madigan. He's a video game psychologist. And it talks about a study where they were kind of seeing how avatars, the way that avatars looked, would affect people's perceptions of other things. And they talk about this study at Stanford where they demonstrated that avatars shape their owners. The participants would put a, a pin in their lips and hold it straight out so that their lips were pursed and and other people would put the pin in their teeth so it made them smile. And then they would show them avatars and they would ask them how they felt about those avatars. And it it, it turned out just from the act of like smiling or like kind of that frowning thing, uh, that would change their perception of the way that they saw that avatar. So I think that when you're looking at your character as you play it, it could have an effect on the choices you make in the game and how you play it. To me, when I look at Nathan Drake, he just looks like a bro who wants to go loud. Like, I don't want to sneak around as Nathan Drake. But I could also see, like, if you made a character that looks like your friend or something, you're going to feel much worse putting them in a situation of danger. I think that's why sort of the XCOM character customizations work so well. Yeah, I've been watching um, Exquisite Corpse, and uh, (laughs) I did a similar thing where I just kind of named all of my characters after friends and... Um, I, I saved scum that game, so, um, you know, (laughs) you get really attached to you. I'm like, no, Steve, don't fall off. Don't, don't, don't get hit. Um, so don't don't tell me what to do, bro. I know, right? Uh, you're a great sniper, by the way. Oh, thank you. Um, but yeah, like it totally, it totally like changed the way that I played, but it, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a different thing. It's when I look at Geralt from the Witcher, um, he just seems like a roguish type. So it's like, sure, I'll do this quest, but pay me. You know, versus another game where I'd be like, "Yo, yeah, I'll, sure, I'll slay the dragon, no problem." Just, to, just out of the goodness of my heart. So, I think that's it's, that's why it's important is the way that I play video games. It's so great that you brought that up. I, I'm the exact same way. Like in in XCOM, uh, if I create a character that looks like me, I don't give a shit. Like that character will be the first one into battle, <laughs> and and if and if he gets mowed down, whatever. But if I make a character that like looks like a friend or is named after a friend. 
I am protecting that character because I feel terrible. Like if anything happens to them, and that's really fun. I don't know if I don't know if you guys experience it that way. Like I, I, you know, as far as like protecting your friends, you know, Jared, you said you're you try to do that, but I don't know if you feel the same way. Also about like having someone that looks like you that you don't really care about in the game. No, like I think you said earlier, I try to make an idealized version of me. So if I was this hero, um, you know, I, I feel like I would be kind of selfless. And, you know, that's the way that I would like to be if I was put into that situation. So that's the way that I, I play the game. And going back to that same study or that same article that uh, Jamie had written, he was talking in there also about the self-perception theory, which is the idea that we we typically think that like we project onto our avatar, but that there's some indication that it might actually be a two-way road that like if you see an idealized version of yourself being happy that will make you happy and it's not because you projected that onto your character but because your your character in some ways projected that back onto you i think that's i think that's kind of interesting and something that maybe gets a little overlooked in this discussion like a lot of times people think like oh yeah i play my character how i would play the game but sometimes the game plays you the way that your character would play you. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think that's a very basic form of, of psychological thinking is that, you know, if you're if you're watching a funny movie with friends, you're more likely to probably laugh out loud versus if you're watching it in a quiet room, most of the time you'll you'll laugh, but not in the same way. It's like you want you want to show other people, you want to project that you are being happy and other people do that as well. So you, you find things probably either funnier or more entertaining when you're with a, you know, a like-minded group of people. Now we talk about protecting our, our friends' avatars in games, but there might be one among us who is intentionally trying to kill off their friends' I'm, avatars. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think so. No, probably. <laughs> Maybe if they were, they sound pretty fun and cool, but I don't know. <laughs> Then, um, for people who don't know, I'm of course talking about the 13 Deadly Sims that Abby hosts. So, what what was the 13 Deadly Sims like? How did that kind of come about for, um, for that project? Well, I wanted to do something with the Sims just because I love the Sims, and I also thought it would be fun to make everybody in the Sims. Um, we did a little bit on an extra live stream where I made, I think, Vinny and Dan, and that was super fun. So I was like, well, why don't I make everybody? I think it's also just fun, especially for an audience, but also for ourselves to see our friends kind of do wacky stuff in this world. Like, I don't think the feature would be nearly as fun if they were just any random sim. Um, and then I was looking at kind of, there are all these like sims challenges online. So I was looking at some of them and there was one that was like, kill your sims 10 different ways or something but i was like well why don't i just do it every way that there is possible to kill them and it kind of spiraled from there so now i'm i'm in the process of killing all of my coworkers in the sims one by one <laughs> and that's really fun because that's like making sort of a game inside of the game using that like character creator as a tool for that i guess the sims has always kind of been I don't know, choose like your a, own like, kind of yeah, choose your fun, like set your own goals, kind of thing. Like totally. sometimes, you, sometimes you want to get you know a really good job and and raise a good family, but sometimes you just want to put someone in a pool and take away the ladder. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I think as someone who plays The Sims a lot, I think it's pretty easy to get in that loop of like, okay, I'm making a genius sim who's going to get promoted to the top of their job and just sort of grind away each generation and kind of have them all be perfect. Uh, so I think it's fun to add these new challenges to make it so it's not so uh, not just sort of min-maxing the game every time you play, if that makes sense. While we're on the topic of The Sims, I think the one thing that I like that they do is you get to give them personality traits. And yeah. I wish that that 
was carried over into more games, especially when you're not really playing like an established character that um, had already has like a background. I wish you could assign your own background to him. That's like one of the coolest things about rolling a character in D and D is you kind of get to like make up this whole backstory for them, where they came from, why they are the way that they are, and allows you to role play. Like, why would they make this decision? Um, based on their past experiences and you don't really often get that from most character creators and the sims kind of touches on that but in open-ended games like you know fallout i would love to see more stuff like that like oh this person they grew up without a mother or something like that and that kind of affects more dialogue choices or gives you opens up different avenues i don't know um, I mean, I think Fallout actually does do that a little bit with some of the, or at least I know Fallout New Vegas did with some of the traits you pick up. You can get like the, like, I don't know, they're like, like the one that was like man eater or something, or if you're playing as a woman and you can like seduce these men and then murder them, I think is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or something similar. Uh, but I do think there are some dialogue options as far as that goes, but. It's probably easier in The Sims too, because they're somewhat autonomous. It, right. I don't know like what, I don't even know how you would do that with the technological limitations that we currently have. Exactly. I would like to see it explored a little bit. Um, I exactly. feel like, yeah, I, I agree. I think that would be a cool feature. Um, I, I, I can think of something like Skyrim that does it a little bit in the sense of what race you pick, I feel like is usually where I'll see mm-hmm. it in games. It's like, yeah, that's good. oh, if you are the cat race, people are going to be like, oh, you're sneaky, I don't trust you. Or like you'll automatically dislike this other race or whatever it is. Uh, so I feel like that's usually where I see that kind of thing in games that aren't the sims and this is where it goes i think you know jared you just brought up DD again i think a lot of this goes back to dungeons and dragons where games are sort of chasing that experience of true open-ended gameplay not not all games but some games um, especially like rpgs are, are trying to create the idea that you're in this world with like limitless possibilities but it's built inside a system that's very rigid in a lot of ways and this is where we go, I think, back to our procedural gener- our procedural generation conversation um, as what's sort of going to be the savior in these in in these regards. If we're if we're looking at sort of like the the long view of video games, if you want like minor details or small personality things to play uh, parts in in your story, I think you have to start to uh, accept the idea that you're going to have to let the computer sort of make those those little decisions for you and and not worry about having to like finesse every single detail by hand this is where we get into our weird like cyberpunk dystopia where yeah where like you know like right now it feels as a job in a creative field like my job is usually pretty safe like it's hard for computers to replace a creative mind um but i think that's on the horizon i think that's something that we'll probably start to see in our lifetime where computers are writing entire stories for people um, and that's, that's also a little frightening. Oh, exactly. I mean, like how do you mathematically, how do you mathematically spell out, you know, what someone's backstory is like, mm-hmm. I don't know how that works, but yeah, I we're not, it has a lot we're of not far away from that. The, the future that Mary Kish imagined for us all where <laughs> we're all just playing video games for the amusement of the AI that created them. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Her, her rocket league theory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, let's, uh, I mean, this is this is the part of the show that I love when we get to go negative, but <laughs> are there any, I guess, maybe negative examples of character customization in games, Abby? Like maybe a game where it felt 
unnecessary or the character customization wasn't very good or or anything along those lines? I mean, usually when it's an unnecessary, I don't mind it so much. So I, I'm thinking of maybe like something like Bloodborne, where you do have some character customizations up at the top. But as, as far as like outside of maybe picking your gender, it doesn't really affect anything. And I feel like you don't really even notice once you're playing. Like, I feel like I never really saw my character's face anyway. And they were so kind of generic, even the options they had. But I feel like the stuff that I, where it's like, this character customization I straight up don't like is usually like, oh, it's very sexualized for the only the women characters or like you have like a boob slider or something, which is like not necessarily bad, but like depending on how it's done, it could be a little like, okay, we don't need this. Uh, That's usually the stuff that I am usually a bit annoyed by or or even like I know uh, I had a few friends who were upset with the Monster Hunter character creator because it didn't offer any kind of body slider options. You really just had like a thin kind of fit person for both genders. And I think a lot of people wanted to sort of have a character that reflected more of what they looked like. Yeah, I I think those are great points. I think character creators at the beginning of games sort of open up this idea that like you can create anything. You can be you could be anyone uh, as long as you want to be a man or a woman, uh, as long as you want to be a fit person, as long as you want to be straight, you know, like there's they don't really provide a lot of those those options for truer expression of self through the game. Right. And I, I can understand there are sort of gameplay limitations to that as far as you have to have yeah. these kind of all of these outfit option skins to fit the character body each time. And it's much easier to have like one body type you have to fit it to versus a ton. Uh, same with sort of disabled folks. Like I, I cannot think of a single character customization option that has a disabled option or uh, anything sort of similar to that. And I know that it's probably very difficult to do as a game designer and a game maker. Uh, but it's also a shame that it's, I feel like that kind of thing is very underrepresented if represented at all. Like imagine yeah. like what cool things you could do if you gave the player the option to, you know, for instance, be in a wheelchair. Like imagine the cool creative ways you could go about level design and think about level design and storytelling if you gave that an option. I know right. that it's like, yeah, budget budget necessitates that you can't make, you know, five different versions of the story. But it would be interesting. Like those kind of options open up more intriguing thoughts and and exercises of creativity for developers. Yeah, I think it's probably also very difficult to have a, a character in a wheelchair and not have it have that be a narrative part of the game. You know what I mean? And not sure. sort of, I guess, uh, represent the kind of point of view and sort of the struggle that a lot of those folks kind of face navigating in a world that's not really designed for them, if that makes sense. Um, I also think that usually when you see uh, games try to address those things, I feel like the only example I know of is that South Park game that had like the race slider and it made the game more difficult. I feel like it's usually not always well done when they do try to do that. Granted, yeah, South Park even had that, the best it example. It ended up being kind of a cop out. They kind of right, really totally. didn't commit to that idea. Yeah. Um, you I mean, know, the, but, the only thing I was, the only point I was trying to make is that I think, you know, it, it's one thing if you create, if you craft a narrative experience around a particular character. So if you have a character that's bisexual or you have a character mm-hmm. that is disabled and in a wheelchair, um, I think it's easier to craft that stuff around that character. The, I think the issues with the character customization come up because it sort of promises this idea that like, Hey, you'll, you'll be able to create anything you want for your character, 
but even that sort of fits in these like rigid guidelines that totally. have been sort of like long established in the industry. And some of it I understand is like, oh, you know, we don't have the the budget to fully craft out what the narrative is like if if you choose a you know a character who is um, physically disabled. But some of these things do kind of seem easy. Like if um, even something like picking your preferred pronouns in a game doesn't seem too hard to implement. And if romance is a part of your game, I know a lot of the games that um, include romance options allow you to sort of have your character uh, be straight or gay or bisexual in, in, in a lot of those. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking mostly of like Mass Effect where you can kind of yeah. romance almost anyone, but. Well, like, you know, like simple things like I've, I've seen Tanya talk about how almost no games that are, have character creators give the option for um, natural hair styles for black people mm-hmm. and people of right. color. And, and like she's like, oh, cool, I can make someone who looks a lot like me. But for some reason, I still have straight shoulder length hair. It's like that yeah. doesn't make right. sense for what she, you know, I think as far as being representative, that seems like a very easy fix when you already have 30 different hairstyles in the game. Yeah, I, I can think of. Um, like little to no games that do curly hair well. Like I think that's also part of. I'm obviously not a person of color, but I, you know, I also have a hard time finding curly hair in games. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that's maybe part of why I don't make myself is because usually I make it up to a point, and then it's like, well, now it's I, it doesn't look like me anymore. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. Just just shave your head bald, and there will be an oh, option yeah, in, every, in every game for you. <laughs> and, and I actually did good. shave my head in high school. Uh, Pixar didn't happen. that's pretty cool um i think that you know to expect that tomorrow video games would include a lot more options and character customizations for representing marginalized people is unrealistic but i do think that there are things that could be done fairly quickly to at least make some people feel more welcome in the video game space talking about something like hair like yeah if you're already investing a lot of your resources and creating 50 different hairdos that look good on white dudes maybe take some of that time and and make some hair that you know is representative of other people besides white guys right Um, and sometimes that means hiring folks that aren't white for your thing i think that's why you know representation and diversity in kind of making the games themselves is also very important because you need that perspective to really realize Uh, why something might not be working exactly and this goes back to like it it has to be a consideration from the very start of your game right like if you if you make a game and you've already spent all your money creating these 50 haircuts for for white guys and you get to the end of development and you're like oh we need to you know throw in some throw in some diversity because it's the hot topic right now like you've already you've already fucked up (laughs) like you've already goofed too too bad but if you consider it from the very beginning and say like look we want to have you know, these kinds of, of people represented in our game, um, then that will become, that will guide your design process as you're working on the, as you're working on the game and not just like, Oh, throw it in because we want to throw it in. But no, we've, we've thought about it every step of the way. Uh, we've thought about the way that to light people of, uh, different skin colors. And we've thought about, you know, how to animate hair for people, um, who don't, who, you know, who don't just want to have the, faux hawk or whatever you know so i think there's a lot of things that could definitely be be done in the fairly short term and then you know progress is slow typically hopefully a lot of this stuff gets better over time yeah and to go back to the sims i know they have a lot of uh great trans options in their games actually where they have um i don't think they have like a gender like 
non-binary option, but they do have, you can go through and be like, I want my sim to have a masculine body type. I want my sim to wear masculine clothes, but they can get pregnant and they might uh, identify as male or female or whatever it is. And you have all these options, uh, which are actually pretty pretty great. Yeah, they're great. And they're like subtle too. It's not like a thing that's going to hit you over the head or be like, look at what we did for you. But it's, uh, it's a nice feature that I really appreciate. Good on them. I haven't played a Sims game since the first one. So it's it's exciting that there are people in the game space thinking about that kind of stuff. Totally. Now, you know what you know what some people in the game space are thinking of though, right? What's <laughs> how to how to get our money. How to yeah. get all our money. Get that sex um, slider back in there. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Well, okay, that's not that's not the direction I was going. But, right. <laughs> that's the direction <laughs> I want to go. Sex dice roll, what was it? <laughs> yeah. Um no, I was thinking of, like, obviously, I think a lot of people who play video games are interested in the idea of affecting the look of their avatar in games. I think I've, the three of us clearly are. Um, how do you guys feel about things like monetizing that aspect of games, like monetizing the dress-up part of games? I, I think of Overwatch because that's been a big one, you know, a big topic of conversation recently, especially with, uh, you know, loot boxes being in the news perpetually for the last year does that seem does that seem okay to you abby like this idea that that game designers have have identified well maybe i shouldn't say designers i maybe publishers is is more where the um the blame lies (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna say blame i'm I'm blaming them uh uh, does it seem okay that they've taken this this piece of gaming the you know the ability to customize how your character looks and sort of uh monetized it um i mean i it's you know as games are becoming a thing you play for a longer period of time you kind of buy it once and then play it for potentially months at a time um i i can i can understand why they need to continue making money off of it um and i can understand i think i would much rather a you know the the uh cosmetics to be monetized versus something like you can pay to sort of level up or be better so i'm not just sort of getting killed by someone who has paid their way to the top if that makes sense um but i you know i don't mind it so much i'm definitely as far as like loot boxes go i don't buy loot boxes but i've definitely played games where the loot box is actually the draw of why i am continuing to level my character like i think of call of duty world war ii and like i'm getting loot boxes all the time i'm never paying for them but when i pick up a bounty and i complete the bounty i usually get a loot box for it and i get these sort of rare cosmetics because of it and it's definitely an incentive in a weird way like i think i my psychology is definitely playing into what they want it to play into which is uh maybe a little strange but as as long as it's not too i don't know it's it's loot boxes are like a weird hot topic um but I, I would much prefer cosmetic uh, charges than, I guess, uh, uh, XP. Like a pay to win. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Style. Um, but I think, you know, I still, I miss, I mean, they still have this, but I, I do prefer DLC that's like, here's more story or something like that instead. But I think it depends on the game. Like, you know, one of the, one of the earliest examples of DLC microtransactions was the horse armor in Oblivion. And it's like, well, Oblivion's kind of about, getting better armor and getting better weapons and, and and improving your character. So it kind of seemed like a slap in the face where they're like, here, just pay money and you get that, you know, that, right. that, that feedback where you're like, yes, I get, I get this look at something different now, but you didn't really earn it. You just paid for it. Um, Diablo three 
had their auction house where you could pay real money for better items, which was also kind of like pay to win, even though it wasn't really focused on PvP. But you could, you know, throw money at how cool your character looked. And then they eventually went back on that after people were just super upset with <laughs> that gameplay loop. Um, so in Overwatch, I don't think it's as, as big of a deal because it's like, well, I played this game a lot and I, and I earned these loot boxes or paid for it because I enjoy the game. And now other people get to see the cool aesthetics that I get to wear. So totally. it, it kind of just depends on on how aesthetics really play into the gameplay loop. I just thought it was interesting that... A- how your avatar appears in games is clearly such an important part of why people play games. And, and maybe that's kind of overstating its importance, but it, it's clearly a, a aspect of games that a lot of people enjoy. And it just struck me as weird that like recently that's been like sort of the one thing that's been monetized almost more than anything else. Well, what else, I mean, what else do you monetize? Like I, I am very much in the camp that game prices haven't gone up in years and years and years, oh, but sure. game development. So it's like they, they have to make money some way else. I, I much rather yeah. prefer it be that, but like... I think back to Modern Warfare 2 where that game, um, as far as I know, you couldn't pay for any cosmetic imp- uh, improvements. You had to earn all your cosmetics through playing the game. But the thing they sold you was more multiplayer maps. But I feel like more and more, the monetization has really pushed towards the aesthetics of, of the game and, and moved away from those kinds of purchases. Not that they've abandoned them completely, but a lot of the emphasis in the last couple of years seems to be placed on on that part of it. Because it seems like the least, like it's the least amount that you can affect the actual gameplay. If you're splitting people up based on whether they bought the new maps, then your player base shrinks. It gets harder to get into games. So they're, they're running to walls left and right. And I, I don't know. I think that it's very easy to, I think the cosmetics is the most effective and efficient way to for them to have a continued revenue source now if we're talking about you buy a piece of dlc and now you get to choose between more than two genders in the sims i think maybe you're running into some issues there ethically oh sure yeah here's a question for you abby do you sort of do you value appearance over gameplay advantages in in some regards do you ever do you ever go like i couldn't equip this piece of gear and make my character like way better but instead i'll keep this old piece of crummy gear because it looks dope i totally do that like i i think even with monster hunter i didn't wear a helmet because i liked the face i made for my girl and i liked how she looked and i like had you know the helmet gave me like perks but it's like well i don't i don't want to cover this face i just made uh so i definitely think i i for instances like that i definitely prefer cosmetics over you know, gameplay advantages. It depends on the situation, obviously. But I think I'm definitely a sucker for, oh, I want my girl to look cool at all costs. I do the same thing sometimes. In Monster Hunter specifically, I'm still wearing some gauntlets that are like really early level gauntlets just because they look cool and I don't want to give them up. But yeah, totally. (laughs) Well, I remember when we were playing through uh, World of Warcraft and I think I started getting into it right around, right after Burning Crusade. So Cataclysm, I think it was. And uh, Burning Crusade kind of had like this notoriety for being like this weird like mishmash of colors and shapes. And I remember just like, I was like, no, I'm not going to equip any of this. I'm just going to try to blow through some levels so that I can get to the next expansion because it looked terrible. Now, do you guys have like a threshold where you're like, okay, time to equip something new, even though it looks junky? Or do you just do you just stick to your guns on the appearance stuff? Because I feel like I personally have sort of like this threshold where I'm like, 
All right, it's been about 20 levels and I haven't upgraded my my helmet. I'll do it now, I suppose. I think it depends on how handicapped I am by whatever item I'm not upgrading is. Um, like I know in, uh, I think it was like Borderlands 2, there was this gun that when you shot it, it would like yell insults at you. Oh, I um, love that. Yes. I know. Yes. I love that gun so much, but I used it like far too long, but then I just had to stop because I could not uh, kind of compete in these missions anymore. I like, I just wasn't getting through them fast enough because I was using a gun that was too weak. Uh, so I think it's always when it's like, okay, I literally can't really progress anymore because I'm, I'm kind of choosing looks over the actual gameplay. I think some games have gotten around that World of Warcraft and Diablo specifically would let you transmute things where you mm-hmm. would just take the stats mm-hmm. from your better item and make it to look like whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how I feel thing. about that sometimes. Yep. Like, I like that. But also if like the draw is to show other people like, look at this cool stuff you have and they look at it and they see one thing, but the stats say something else. Like, I feel like that can get a little confusing. But um, oh, if they I'm give me the option. That. Yeah, no, it's totally cool being able to look how you want. But. Sometimes I feel like maybe it could be a little misleading if that is your main gameplay loop. Mm. It's funny because I have, I, and this might just be my own weird quirks, I did not like the way they did it in World of Warcraft. I do like the way they did it in Destiny. And I, there's almost no difference between the two. So that might, just, again, might just be my weird brain. But there's just some, there's something about that idea that you could make any piece of armor look like any other piece of armor in World of Warcraft that just rubbed me the wrong way. But when it was Destiny and it was like you could, they eventually made it so you could like level gear up by putting other, you know, higher level gear into it. That was perfectly fine with me. I was totally okay with that. Hmm. I think maybe the difference is it's sort of a like this gun will still have the same traits, but it's going to level with you versus a hey, you're going to keep the same cosmetics and it doesn't matter that you worked or you like gr- like did a bunch of grinding for four hours. You're going to have this armor that like looks super cool that somebody else also has, but is like upgraded way more because they've like crunched something else into it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, and definitely makes me sound less crazy. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do we want to see in the future of character creators? What What can developers publishers do to sort of improve uh the way that people are able to affect the the look and feel of of their avatars um i definitely think i don't know i think we covered it a bit before when we were talking about diversity i definitely think it's good to sort of have uh everyone be represented in it so that way they could feel like they are making themselves in the game which is important when you have character customization that is very much like uh advertised as something that's like super in depth. Like I want it to actually be that in depth for a wide breadth of people. Um, I also think, I don't know. I, I like, I hope they just keep being creative with it. Like I, I like fun options and I, I hope they continue to do that, which I'm sure that they will. Jared, how about you? What can the, what can the industry do to improve? I really like the idea that your character, uh, your character's appearance can change with the way that you play the games or the options you make. I would like to see stuff like, you know, Mass Effects. If you went down the Renegade path, you'd start to get like weird scars and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with uh, Knights of the Old Republic. If you went Sith, you'd start to look a little different. It would be cool. I, I uh, Like Abby brought up Red Dead Redemption. I didn't even know this is a mechanic that uh, you got like a, a war horse if you played like a bandit or super evil. I think that that would be super interesting to have your choices and actions represented uh, in a, in a in a way that's um, more aesthetic on on the screen and in your face, so it's like 
man, I, I, I do look like a piece of shit because I've just been murdering everybody. <laughs> I think it would be cool if there was more, if it was more directly influenced by your actions that you took. And less along the lines of like, oh, I've just been evil for a while, so now my, my hair is darker and my eyes are red. But m- things more along the lines of like, I completed this quest this way. And, you know, like I, I fought this boss and he left this kind of scar on me that's specific to the way that I handled that situation. That would be super um, rad. Yeah, I think that that stuff would be cool. I I instantly think of the movie Die Hard, like the original Die Hard. Like at the end of that movie, he's just beat to shit. And it's like fantastic because because that's not how movies are made. Like <laughs> typically at the end of the movie, your hero looks the same as they did at the beginning. But like Die Hard was great because like he he wore the events of that movie on himself at the end of the I think the new Tomb Raider games kind of do that. As you progress through the story, she gets more and more tattered up. Yeah. Um, And then that's, you know, there's some issues around Tomb Raider, but I I really, I think that's really cool. It'd be cool to see that in a more open-ended type game, more sandboxy type game. Um, I don't know how exactly that would, that would be like, why can't my character just go buy new clothes? But, um, you know, they start to look more tired and I, you know, they're not getting sleep. They're, their consequence, the consequences of their actions are, are weighing on them. I think there's definitely ways to do that um, and, and show that reflected in your character. Totally. Now, for me, what I would like to see in the future is, well, I'll, I'll just go ahead and echo what Abby said about um, representation because I think that that's important. In our in our representation in the protagonist role episode, I, I read a quote from Kim Belair where she was talking about being able to see you know, she created a, a character that was black. And then one of the first interactions that her character had was with another black character. And that had an effect on her being able to see, you know, the character that she had created in this situation where neither one of the two characters on screen were these like stereotypes in any way and, and how impactful that was. And I think that by, you know, expanding the kinds of people that could be represented through character creators will allow more people to have a similar experience to what Kim had that um, that she referenced in that article that I then referenced. <laughs> <laughs> There's a chain of references that happened. I'm referencing an old reference to a reference. There we go. <laughs> um, the, I guess the other thing I would say is just to sort of bring it back around to what we talked about sort of with the procedural generation idea this idea that the subtleties to the way you've created your character will have impact in the game and have it not necessarily be like pre-scripted like oh you're a khajiit you're gonna steal all the stuff in my store uh, i don't trust you but having it come across in more subtle ways i think that I'm, I'm really excited for the days when we sort of let the computer sort of take over how those things affect gameplay in in more subtle but i guess also conversely more meaningful ways if that makes sense I'm telling you steve you're gonna kill us all with this thought that's i know that's yeah <laughs> it is it is i, <laughs> I feel like every time we everyone up- to be represented is that nobody lives <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah the, the way to maximize everyone being represented is to wipe everyone off the face of the planet exactly it's the only logical way <laughs> yeah we are we are every time we mention procedural generation we're basically advocating for skynet it's coming <laughs> uh, was there anything else we wanted to bring up before we moved on? Uh, no, I don't think so. Cool. Well, I guess that that's going to do it for our discussion. We'll move on to our listener emails. If you have any questions or comments about character customization or any of our previous topics, you can always send us an email at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. Also, always taking ideas for uh, topic ideas. So if you have anything, send it along. 
Jared, what do we got today? Yeah, we got a tweet from at the Alien Pickle. It's a great handle. Um, he is talking, he's referencing our episode with Drew Scanlon about flight and video games. We talked a lot about different types of simulators and things like that. Um, but the Alien Pickle, he says, we did a show a few months back, retrospective on flight sims. My conclusion was that accessibility is king and I prefer pilot sim to an accurate plane sim. Uh, he talks about a game called Jane's USAF. It was the pinnacle of that era. Um, and I guess that came out like around 1999 and focused more on the logistics of being a pilot and less on how to fly a plane. Uh, but he, he kind of goes on there and he says that I, I like DCS, but I'd rather not learn all the avionics because I did it in real life already. So I guess he's a, he's a pilot. Uh, he says, I think the market is present and eager for a good fun sim that respects reality and isn't ace combat with a hundred missiles and in-flight reloads but makes the avionics a little magic so people can worry about what to do, not how to be in the right TWS mode to see blips. Um, and, and like that's that's the thing, like when we talked about flight and video games, my, my thoughts were like, I really like being the pilot. I like the idea of being the pilot and not being the planes, which why this is why uh, Star Citizen appeals to me or the idea of Star Citizen appeals to me because it very much seems like you are the pilot versus just a spaceship avatar. Abby, are you into flight sims or, or flight games at all? Um, I, my dad was really into aviation, so I played some of his, like, very in-depth flight sims growing up, and they're always very hard, but I did enjoy, I, I enjoy flying and when it's more accessible, I think, um, so as far as, like, the, like, I don't know, GTA 5 came to mind of flying around the jets and the smaller planes, I really enjoyed that. I also like the idea that if there was a simulator more geared towards like maybe a scenario, it's like, oh, like one of your engines, I'm sure this probably exists, but it's more about like, what are, what are the, uh, what's the protocol in a very specific situation and less on like what bush, what buttons to press, which I think is a little bit easier to gamify, but yeah. there's, you know, all those other mods that Drew brought up like VATSIM where you get to interact with other people who are playing as air traffic control. I think that adds a very cool layer to an already, you know, pretty accurate game. Yeah, and he said he thinks the market is like ready for a good flight sim game. And I I feel like I've always sort of been on the cusp of being into flight sims, but the thing that has always sort of held me back is they just feel so dry. Like even if they're combat flight sims, it just, you know, there's just something about like the dog fight. It kind of always feels samey to me. I think the one thing that would that would like really get my interest in a, in a flight sim game is if it was realistic, you know, realistic controls and, you know, he, he's talking about ace combat with hundreds of missiles, you know, like if, if you were carrying an accurate payload for the kind of plane you're flying, but if it was something like really far fetched, like, um, independence day, like you're, you know, you're flying the crop duster and you're fighting aliens. Like to me, that I think would be the thing that would really get me into flight sims because you can have all of the the mechanics of flying a plane be realistic, but then the scenario itself is like really off the wall. To me, that that would be exciting. And that game might, probably exists. I probably just am not familiar with it. You might be interested in War Thunder. It's it's a free to play game. There's a lot of grinding involved, but they they have like a very accurate sim type mode, and there's more of an arcadey mode. But uh, every once in a while, they I know for a couple years ago, they did an April Fool's event where a giant slug with laser eyes was attacking a town and uh, all the pilots had to band together to take that thing down. And that was pretty funny. Oh, they got, they got my spec script, I see. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's re- yeah, that's so that's like exactly what I'm talking about. So yeah, maybe once I get a once I get a a good gaming PC set up, I'll have to I'll have to poke around and, and see what's out there because I do like flying in games. I just haven't found the sim that really like clicks for me. So yeah. Anyways, thank you, Alien Pickle, for writing in. Was, yeah, thank uh, you. It's it's always cool to hear from other pilots. I'm I'm a huge plane person, like Drew. So anytime like- we get to talk about more planes, <laughs> now in my head you're like a like a giant plane person. <laughs> y- yes. <laughs> Don't judge me. Don't judge my lifestyle. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. That's going to do it for listener emails. Again, you can always send your own emails to us at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. Do it. We love hearing from everyone. And I, I guess that'll do it for this episode. I think before, so. Yeah. But before we get out of here, I, I have to thank our guest, Abby Russell. Abby, thank you so much for taking time out of your weekend to join us. This has been a, this has been a joy. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. I feel like I've learned a lot. Well, that's what we, we, we consider ourselves like a school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. Try, it's always my goal to teach our guests like a, like a lesson. It's, it's about guests teaching themselves. I mean, oh, wow. you know, it's a, it's a, this whole thing is a thought exercise. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Abby, where can, where can people keep up with you and, uh, and follow the work that you're doing? Uh, you can follow my work at giantbomb.com. Um, and then you can also follow me on Twitter. Uh, just search my name, Abby Russell, but my handle is Y-B-B-A-A-A-B-B-Y. And I'll echo what I said at the start. Definitely follow her. Got some great tweets out there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> of course. And as a reminder, we release new episodes of this podcast every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and want to help us out, head over to our iTunes and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast, This Is Rad, on iTunes. I'm Stephen Bennett. That's at Stephen underscore the gamer. And I'm at Jared Bruner. We want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. All right. Thanks, guys. I'm going to go find out what I'm going to wear today. (laughs) (laughs) Ha ha ha!